The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Would you join me as we pray? Father in heaven, you indeed reign. You reign over all things, and so reign over our hearts now so that we would see Jesus more clearly and that we would behold you in your word and that you would get glory for yourself. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the greatest mismatch that you've ever witnessed in your life? Maybe in the sports realm. What's the greatest mismatch that you've ever witnessed in your life? You could probably say any Minnesota franchise against any other really good franchise, but let's put that aside for a moment. For me, it was in 1990, and it was the San Francisco 49ers, which was my team at the time, and they beat the Denver Broncos in Super Bowl 24. Some of you are too young to remember this, but a number of you, I'm sure, watched this game, and the final score was 55 to 10, a blowout in the Super Bowl. The Denver Broncos, led by John Elway, were no match for Joe Montana and Jerry Rice, Hall of Famers. They were clearly uh, superior to the Denver Broncos. And the Denver Broncos went into Super Bowl 24 looking to avoid tying another football franchise for four Super Bowl losses, and that would be the Minnesota Vikings. But this sermon is not about how terrible the Vikings are. The 49ers had the Broncos clearly outmatched and outgunned. And that's what we see this morning in Acts chapter 12. You get this clash of kings, King Herod and King Jesus. And clearly, King Herod is outclassed, outmatched, outgunned. And he attempts to go head-to-head with King Jesus. And spoiler alert, he loses Herod is attempting to persecute, kill, and destroy the people of God and his church. And the Lord Jesus Christ has something to say and do about that. So let me just remind us of where we're at in Acts 12. Acts 12 records the continued advance of the gospel despite persecution and imprisonment and hostility and opposition. And it comes up to sort of the tail end of of kind of describing the gospel going out to Judea and Samaria. Because in chapter 13 and onward, we're going to shift to looking at Saul or Paul and the ministry to the Gentiles. And so we see this transition of leadership that begins to take place. And the gospel is continuing to unfold as Jesus had promised in Acts 1.8. Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and then to the very ends of the earth. And the main thing I want us to see in this passage this morning is that though the schemes and the power of the wicked are great, the power and the glory of God is much greater. That's what Acts 12 shows us. The schemes and the power of the wicked are great, but the glory and power of God is much greater. In a way, this passage illustrates Psalm 1-6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Or it would be illustrating Acts 5-39, a little closer to home. 
This is, remember, Gamaliel kind of speaking to the chief priests. And he says, if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And that's what we see in Acts 12 this morning. King Herod is opposing God. And this is what happens when you stand up against God and his church. When God wants to unfold his plan for redemptive history. And I hope that this morning, this passage would just be a deep encouragement to us. That we would be encouraged by seeing how God is unfolding his plan of redemption in the world. This is the month of June, and much of our country flies a rainbow flag to openly embrace and flaunt and revel in sin that will damn you to hell. And this goes all the way up to the highest authorities in our country. And you might be wondering, what's going to happen to the church if we follow this trajectory? And Acts 12 answers that question. Jesus Christ will indeed build, advance, and multiply his word and grow his church until the very ends of the earth are reached. It is unstoppable. And so it does not matter. Do not be afraid. It's a little bit like the, the illustration or the, the book, the children's book that I've read uh, more times than I care to uh, remember. We're going on a bear hunt. I don't know if any of you parents have read this one. It, it's uh, four kids. They're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. We're not scared. And so they come up to, against all these obstacles, long grass and mud and uh, whatever else, uh, a river, a snowstorm. And what is the repeated refrain? We can't go over it. We can't go under it. We got to go through it. And so it is with the church. When opposition and hostility and persecution comes, the church can't go over it or under it. We go through it by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus advances his church in the midst of persecution. We don't pray for an easy life but we pray for faithfulness and perseverance to follow him all the way to the end. And the way that we do that is because we know that God is powerful, infinitely good, and always in control. So our plan is to look at this passage in three sections. First, verses 1 through 5, we see the savage schemes of Herod. And then 6 through 23, we see the powerful providence of God and releasing Peter, and then the multiplication of God's word in verse 24 and 25. So look with me at verses 1 through 5. Before we look at this, Herod's persecution against the church, we want to ask two questions. Who is Herod and why is he persecuting the church? So Herod is King Herod Agrippa I. He's the grandson of Herod the Great, who was uh, the king at the time of Jesus' birth. His given name was Marcus Julius Agrippa. He was educated and raised in Rome, and he assumed control over Judea, and then later the entire region that Herod the Great ruled over in A.D. 41 to 44. And the reason he's persecuting the church is because he's an opportunistic politician who is seeking his own glory. We see this later in our passage. Verse 3 says, when he saw that killing James pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. 
So Herod is a king who loves the praise of man. He probably doesn't know much about these Christians, but he knows that the Jews hate them, and if he persecutes them, he gets more praise, which is what he wants. Next, we see that he's petty and proud. Look with me all the way down to verse 20. It says in verse 20 that Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, And they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, and they asked for peace. And so what's taking place here is that those people are dependent on the exports from the food that came from Herod's region. And Herod got angry at them, cuts off their food supply, and so they come in order to ask for peace. And in verse 21, it says, He put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. So in the midst of these people coming to ask for peace, Herod says, this is a really good time to show off my new clothes and how good-looking I am. The, The Jewish historian Josephus wrote this about his clothes. It said, he was clad in a garment woven completely of silver to that its texture was indeed wondrous. So Herod is really into himself. The third thing we see, that he's characterized by narcissism. So, The people of Tyre and Sidon worshipped him because they want food. And they say, the voice of a God and not a man in verse 22. And Luke tells us that Herod did not give glory to God, and so God struck him down. So as the people are praising him and calling him a God, what's Herod doing? He's got a big smile on his face, and he's just drinking it all in. Yes, praise me. And God strikes him down. We would call Herod a narcissist. That word comes from Greek mythology, where Narcissus looked at himself in a pool of water, saw his own reflection, and thought it was so beautiful, so he stared at himself until he died. Herod is fixated on himself. So here we get Acts 12, the clash of kings, a king that loves his own exaltation and praise, and then you have King Jesus who is indeed the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the risen and exalted King, who's not seated on an earthly throne, but seated on his heavenly throne. And here they go, head to head. And how will Christ and his church respond? Well, let's see. But before we do, let's just see the the schemes, the savage schemes of Herod. First, we see persecution. We see that in chapter 12, verse 1. Herod laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. This is a very sanitized way of saying people were getting beaten, imprisoned, and terrorized. Second, we see an execution. Verse 2, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. So James, is the, James and John are the sons of Zebedee. They, they were kind of coined the name the Sons of Thunder. So this is the very first apostle to be killed, to be martyred, the second martyr after Stephen. And Luke tells us that Herod likely cut off his head. That's what it means to be killed with the sword. And the third thing we see is in verse 3 that he arrested Peter as well. Now, Luke gives us all sorts of really detailed information about the arrest and the setup, and then later the release, and then uh, Peter appearing later. And, and we have to ask the question why? James' execution hardly gets any words at all. 
He killed James, and then he moves on. But here we get all of this detail about just even the, the setup of Peter in prison. I, I think that there's a reason why, but let's just look at verse 4 real quick. He says, And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So four squads of soldiers. This would mean 16 soldiers, four groups of four. Two were chained to Peter on either side. Two would have guarded probably the doors or multiple sets of doors. And every couple of hours, every three, maybe four hours, they would get relieved and a new group of four. So everyone could be on high alert. Here is maximum security prison. And I think what we're supposed to see is that it's nearly impossible to get out. It's unlikely, unexpected, and that Peter is a prized prisoner. Jason Bourne or James Bond couldn't get out of this predicament, and Herod is going to get a lot of brownie points when he can bring out Peter, put him on trial, and then execute him, and the Jews are going to worship him. So, It says that he's going to bring him out after the Passover, which likely means he's going to put him on trial, execute him. So this is a dire situation. James has already been beheaded. Peter is next. And then we come to verse 5. And it says, But earnest prayer for Peter was made to God by the church. And we'll see later, the disciples likely don't expect Peter to escape. So they're likely praying that maybe the trial would go well or that Peter would persevere in the midst of it or maybe that his punishment wouldn't be execution. But I want us to just pause for a moment and kind of look at prayer and the providence of God. Because we just brushed over the fact that James was killed. Did the church not pray earnestly for James? I imagine that they did. But James was killed and Peter gets out. What gives? What should we learn from this? I think what we're supposed to see, very simply, is that we are, as the church, whatever we see on the horizon, good or bad, is to pray earnestly together to God for deliverance and yet understanding that God's ways and his plans are mysterious. The church prays for James and God takes him home. The church prays for Peter And God does far more than they could ask or even imagine. And this is just a reminder for us that prayer is not mechanical. It's not that we kind of demand from God, do it according to all that we would like done, according to our wisdom. But rather, prayer is a relationship with our Heavenly Father where we look to Him and ask Him, and yet we ultimately put our trust in Him. We, for some of us, we've gone through such deep waters of suffering, and we would never even wish that upon our worst enemies. And yet, God's ways are not our ways. Peter doesn't have more faith than James. God ordains and uses the prayers of his people to advance his work. I think it's a little bit like this. Sometimes when we pray, we're playing checkers. We can only see black or white or red and black, right? We, we, we just see, uh, answer yes to this one. But God is playing chess. 
He's six steps ahead of us. And even in the crucifixion of his son, he says, this is going to be good for the redemption of the whole world. Let let me read an illustration that I hope just highlights the importance of trusting God in the midst of his sovereign hand and and, and yet not growing weary in praying. Helen Rosevere, a British missionary doctor to the DR, the Democratic Republic of Congo, shared this account in her book, Living Faith. She said, a mother at our mission station died after giving birth to a premature baby. So this was probably in the 50s or 60s. We tried to improvise an incubator to keep the infant alive because the nights could get cold. But the only hot water bottle we had was beyond repair. In the hot summer, it would split. The rubber would break. So we asked the children the next day to pray for the baby and for her sister. And one of the girls responded, Dear God, please send a hot water bottle today. Tomorrow will be too late because by then the baby will be dead. And dear Lord, send a doll for the sister so that she won't feel so lonely. After the mother died, she had a two-year-old who was screaming inconsolably, as you can imagine. Helen Rosevere actually writes in the full account that in the four years she was there at the DR, she had never received a package from England. And so she knew this was unlikely. And then she says, that afternoon, a large package arrived from England. The children watched eagerly as we opened it. Much to their surprise, under some clothing was a hot water bottle. Immediately, the girl who had prayed so earnestly started to dig deeper, exclaiming, if God sent that, I'm sure he also sent a doll. And she was right. The Heavenly Father knew in advance of that child's sincere request five months earlier, and he had led a ladies' group, a Sunday school group, to pack both of those specific items. Sometimes we can read stories like that, and we think, well, that, that's then, not now. And I think what we're supposed to see is that despite trials or hostility or persecution, be encouraged to pray expectantly, and earnestly for God to be at work. Let's not be those who do not have because we do not ask. And even here in Acts 12, we see that God does far more than they can even ask or imagine. We just sang, He reigns. Is there anything that he can't do? Can you pray a prayer that is too big for him? Where he says, your faith is too big. I can't do that one. No! Whatever we can imagine, whatever we could possibly ask, we can ask for the greatest things. The Lord Jesus Christ from the heavens can answer all of them and he will do it exactly as he sees fit for the good of his church and for the exaltation of his name. So pray that the name of Jesus would be hallowed in these twin cities and let God make the decision how to best do that for the sake of his name. Let's be the church that comes together in prayer to our sovereign and powerful God. Now I want to look at the second part, the powerful providence of God, verses 6 through 23. And we get four scenes in 6 through 23, and I'm going to move through them very quickly. Peter escapes from prison, so that's 6 through 11. 
And then Peter appears to the disciples. It's 12 through 17. And then the report of Peter's escape goes to Herod, 18 and 19. And then Herod gets struck down by God in 20 to 23. Now we get all these vivid details of Peter's escape. He's positioned between the guards. Additional soldiers are stationed at the doors. The chains on his hands. The appearance of the angel waking him up. All the details of this account point to the supernatural deliverance by God. Even the iron gate leading into the city opens automatically, of its own accord, or more accurately, God opens it. Despite all the extra security and extra measures that Herod puts in place, God cannot be stopped. And Peter is just a passive participant in this. And he actually thinks he's seeing uh, a vision. Verse 9, he did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. He's dazed and confused. And only after he goes out of the jail, a block away, through the city gate, in verse 11, he says, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And Peter's words make the point that though Herod is against him, though the Jewish people are against him, God is on his side. Who can be against us when God is for us? No one. Mission impossible has just taken place. It didn't matter if Herod had 16 soldiers or 16,000 soldiers. He was going to do what he saw fit to do. And all of it pleases him. This is the power and the providence of God at work. And so, for us this morning, some of us are facing dire situations. Some of us have insurmountable obstacles. Some of us are facing great hostility. And this account teaches us that God works mightily through opposition in order to accomplish his purposes. He wants to grow us. He wants to stretch us. He wants us to look to him more and to trust him. Seek to go through it so that God gets glory for how we trust him. Now, verses 12 through 17 Peter goes to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, and he shows up later, and and we'll talk more about him. And then Rhoda kind of leaves Peter at the door, kind of fresh off of death row, uh, waiting outside in the middle of the night. And and we get this comical exchange where she's off debating, and and people doubt her, and, you know, it's not Peter. And she's like, I heard his voice. And, and, And why do we get this exchange? I think it's to show us that... Even the doubt of the disciples, as they're praying, they're probably praying, Peter, pray that he would die well. Can't be him, because maybe they didn't pray for his release. But even their faithlessness does not limit God's great providence. Isn't it wonderful that God does far more than we can ask or imagine? Luke tells us, some clues for the future. In verse 17, he says, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. So James is the brother of Jesus. He's also the author of the book of James. And the specific mention of him likely indicates that there's a little bit of a handoff of leadership that's taking place, that Peter hands it off to James and then Peter goes on to another place. And, you know, Luke, with all of these details, 
down to the smallest of things, doesn't tell us where Peter goes. And I think he's doing that intentionally in order to show us that Peter is exiting stage left. James is perhaps going to lead the Jerusalem church. We're going to transition into looking at Saul or Paul and Barnabas. And, and, and I think all of that is to show that the kingdom of God is never about one man. It's not about Peter. It's not about James. It's not about Saul but it's about the Lord Jesus Christ and his word unfolding his plan for redemptive history, doing all that he pleases. Luke is showing us that the gospel does not hinge on one person, but rather on God himself. And I think this matters because Christ's mission will continue. Even if James gets killed or Peter later dies or Saul later dies, And this is good news. If I drop dead tomorrow, the North Campus will hire a new pastor and will hum along just like it's always hummed along. That's that's not that comforting for me, and yet it's so good for you and for us and for the church. God doesn't need any of us, but he graciously invites all of us in to participate. And that is good news. This is Christ's kingdom, Christ's church, Christ's mission. And he has graciously allowed us to participate. And so in the coming days and weeks and years, you'll hear, as we always do, pastors that, that have moral failings or, or prominent Christians that wrote books that deconvert or become ex-evangelical. And you know what? That's going to happen. And ultimately, the kingdom of Christ marches onward. It doesn't matter. God will build his church. If you oppose God, if you disobey him, you will fall to the wayside. But the Lord Jesus Christ will march onward in building his church. And he's drawing people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation to join in this kingdom. Now, Herod is disturbed. We see this in verse 18 and 19. Even so that the sentries, the the soldiers that were watching Peter, are then executed. So not only are the disciples surprised, Herod's surprised, and the soldiers are surprised and get killed. And then now Herod gets struck down. So 20 to 23, we get this brief account of how God strikes down Herod. And we already saw a little bit of the setting, uh, you know, Tyre and Sidon, and and Herod sort of self-exalting himself. And, And I think... What this illustrates for us is that God will judge the living and the dead. We live in a world where almost nobody thinks about that truth. And yet it's one of the most sobering truths in all the world. Perhaps the most significant thing you can grapple with this morning if you're not following Jesus. God will judge the living and the dead. Every secret will be exposed. Nothing done behind closed doors will remain hidden. And the way of the wicked will perish. God will judge the living and the dead. If you're not following Jesus this morning, maybe you're watching online, we would encourage you, spend some time wrestling with this truth. God will judge the living and the dead. There is no more significant question for you to wrestle with and to understand and to have a way to answer than that. 
What will you do when you reach final judgment? Now, in verse 23, it says that Herod was eaten by worms. So taken along with Josephus' account, which says that Herod was in pain for five days, and, and Luke was a physician himself. You know, people have speculated maybe this is a ruptured appendix. Maybe it's intestinal worms like ringworm and tapeworm or whatever else. And, and all of it is just pointing to here is the just end of an evil tyrant. God will judge the living and the dead, whether in this life or in the one to come. But for the benefit of the church and of the disciples, he says, let me show you what happens when an earthly king tries to exalt himself above the king of kings and steals his glory and wants to exalt himself, put himself on the throne. I'm going to strike him down so that everyone can see and fear that I alone am God. We sung it this morning. Only Jesus Christ reigns in the heavens and on earth. And this is a good warning and reminder that we ought to beware of pride. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Divine judgment may not come in this life, but it will come in the next, at final judgment. And so we are reminded to live as those who are keenly aware that God will judge the living and the dead. So we see the power and the providence of God in in getting Peter out, letting him encourage the rest of the disciples, and then striking Herod down. And now we come to verse 24 and 25. Luke concludes by contrasting Herod's death with the continued advance of the word of God. Verse 24 is a big mic drop. Look at what Herod's done. He killed James. He arrested Peter. He's put him under maximum security prison. Look at all that he's doing. And what happens? What does, what, what's the fruit of all of Herod's savage schemes? The word of God increased and multiplied. He's unstoppable. God's word continues to grow. Game over. You lose, Herod. Despite his persecution and imprisonment and schemes, the church cannot be stopped. Jesus has promised that the gospel will go to the very ends of the earth. And I want that just to be an encouragement for us this morning. Hostility, opposition, persecution, it may increase. It probably will increase. We don't go over it or under it. We go through it by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus has promised that the gospel will go to the very ends of the earth. And this truth should embolden us in our evangelism and praying for the nations. And we see civil wars or other wars around the world. And we think, what's God doing? He's tilling the soil. That's what he's doing. So that the gospel would have ripe, good soil to take root in. God is doing a million things that we cannot see or even understand. And yet this should encourage us so that we would be fearless, whatever happens in our world, and we should be fearless when we go across the street to our neighbors and we engage those around us with the good news of the gospel. And then verse 25 points to the things that will come. 
He says, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. And so chapter 13 onward is going to be the mission to the Gentiles through Saul. So I want to I draw some of these things together. How can we apply this passage if we live in light of God's power and his providence at work in the world in light of Acts 12? How do we live in light of these things? First, did you notice what Peter was doing when the angel came to him? Sleeping. Sometimes I can't sleep before a sermon, you know, because I'm nervous or kind of excited or whatever it is. You know, sometimes you can't sleep if you have a big job interview or a big presentation, you know, keep tossing and turning. You set your alarm for maybe five or six and you keep looking, you know, oh, it's two. Okay, it's, it's three. Oh, it's four. So you, guys, you guys know what that's like. And what's Peter doing? The night before, he's probably going to get killed, beheaded, executed, sleeps like a baby. Why? He's got faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If God is for us, who can possibly be against us? It's no use being anxious. Tomorrow has enough troubles. Tonight, we sleep. That's what Christians should do. We should sleep well because the Lord Jesus Christ is on our side. Not during the sermon, though. (laughs) Second thing, we ought to expect persecution. The gospel of Jesus Christ advances through persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not may, not might, will be persecuted. Will. We should live expecting persecution even if we don't fear it. The schemes of the wicked are great, and yet the power And the providence of God is much greater. God knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And we just have to orient ourselves so that persecution or hostility or opposition is utterly unsurprising. None of us would want it, but we should just live as though we're unsurprised by it. And it's an opportunity to place our hope and trust in the one who reigns who sits in the heavens, who rules over all things. One of the major themes throughout Acts is that the gospel advances in the face of opposition. And I'm sure that many of us are aware of all the cultural and societal challenges that we face. We mentioned it already. June is Pride Month. Uh, The pronoun police may come to an employer near you very soon, or perhaps your university or your workplace. And yet the gospel advances. The Great Commission is not supposed to be easy. Evangelism is not supposed to be a walk in the park. When you're shining as a light in the midst of the darkness, people are going to try to blow you out. So none of this is supposed to be easy. And yet, just because It's difficult doesn't mean we don't engage in it because we have the Lord Jesus Christ on our side and this is what he's doing. It's going to happen. The word of God increases and multiplies. The church advances in the midst of opposition and hostility. Hardship in the Christian life is not abnormal. 
And, and I think this is really important for us to just spend a little bit of time on. Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me. And yet there's a, a strain of self-help pseudo-Christianity that's a strain of the prosperity gospel that's, that's cropping up. And it goes a little bit like this. You get pseudo-Christian authors telling you to trust in yourself and give yourself a break and believe in your dreams and look within to find the, the strength and learn to love yourself and reach for the stars because you're beautiful and capable and you're downright likable. Right? Those books are out there. Jesus is so privileged to have you. And that's a load of dung. The Christian life is marked by knowing that we absolutely do not have the resources within ourselves to do anything. And so at every moment, we live by faith. We've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. And the life we now live, how do we live it? We live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. We don't have it within ourselves, but we look to the risen and exalted Lord Jesus Christ and we get on board with his mission that he's advancing in this world. And and so no, no matter what comes, we don't say, do I have it within me? But who is it that is sitting on the throne? And do I trust in him? And if I do, I can endure whatever it may be that will come. And it could be like James, you get called home. Or maybe you'll be like Peter, and he rescues you because there's more work to do. But we can be 100% confident that the Lord Jesus Christ is building his church, multiplying his word, and his kingdom will never end. So when opposition and hostility and persecution comes to the church or to you personally, we don't go over it, we don't go under it, but we go through it by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who will never leave us nor forsake us and he will be true to his word. Let's pray. Father, embolden us this morning so that we would open our mouths to to declare the good news and then deepen our roots so that whatever winds blow, Whatever storms will rage, oh, our roots will be deep. We will not be blown over. And help us to continue to look to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is seated on his throne. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.